Imagine you're a 12-year-old and out for a summer stroll on the beach with your family and friends. You're throwing a stick for your friend's dog when suddenly the dog gets super agitated and whiny and takes off into the dunes. You follow the dog and stumble upon the source of its agitation. The naked body of a woman, her head nearly severed, both hands missing, and very obviously dead. Such was the experience for Leslie Metcalf at Race Point Dunes in Provincetown, Massachusetts, on the afternoon of July 26, 1974. Leslie's awful discovery would kick off a true murder mystery that prevails to this day. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who's never found a dead body on the beach, but can assure you that if I did, I'd run for the dunes. Or rather, run for the boardwalk behind the dunes, because that's where this mysterious lady was laying. The Lady of the Dunes, they'd come to call her. And warning, strangers, I'm about to dive into some graphic, disturbing description here. The auburn-haired woman laid face down on a beach towel. Her head rested on a pair of Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana, as though she had just been sunbathing when, in fact, she had been bludgeoned. Her skull had been so badly damaged that her facial features were impossible to make out. And, of course, because her hands were missing, there was no chance of identifying her through her fingerprints. The only thing police could discern was that she was somewhere between 25 and 35 years old. She was around 5 foot 6, 150 pounds, and she had had really expensive dental work done. New York-style dental work, police called it. I like to imagine they said it with a lot of side-eye. The way they might say, Manhattan clam chowder. An article in the Boston Globe written five months after the murder said that a corner of the towel she was lying on had been folded over to cover her face. She had been sexually assaulted with a wooden block of some kind after she was already dead. Neither the weapon used to bludgeon her to death nor the one used to assault her post-mortem were found. But it was pretty clear she had been killed where she lay. There was no sign that she was killed anywhere else, brought to this spot, and positioned. Also, there were piles of pine needles where her hands should have been. Police guessed she must have been there for at least a week, if not three. Three weeks lying out in the New England summer heat, only 15 feet from an access road. Police found two sets of footprints and the letters SOS in the sand near the body. They didn't think the SOS was connected, though, which stands to reason. From all indications, she had been attacked while she was laying face down. And from the severity of the wound to her head, it's kind of impossible that she might have gotten up or crawled a few yards away, carved SOS in the sand, and then laid back down where she had been, and then lost her hands. It's not like there were bloody footprints all over the place. So the SOS was a red herring, which leads me to wonder, who the hell put it there? How did they not notice a dead body a few yards away? Why did they put it there? And also, 
How are footprints and letters staying so undisturbed in the sand? Does that bother anyone else? I'm no sand expert, but I've been to the beach a few times, and I'm pretty sure one of the immutable laws about sand is that it shifts and blows away pretty easily. Anyway, that was it. That's all the police had to go on. This was, of course, long before DNA was used in forensics, and so, with no clue as to who this woman was, she was called the Lady of the Dunes, which, I have to say, is a pretty badass moniker. Normally, you'd expect police to just be like, Jane Doe, or if they're being particularly creative, maybe, Dead Sand Girl. But the Lady of the Dunes sounds like a ghost story about a sailor's wife who wasted away, pacing the dunes, waiting in vain for her husband to return from sea. Every year on the anniversary of her death, you can see the Lady of the Dunes in her flowing white nightgown, haunting the spot where she met her demise. Anyway. Police combed the area, checked local motels and rooming houses, tracked down owners of any abandoned vehicles or bicycles in the area, all to no avail. Not a single clue was found. Not the murder weapon, not a missing hand, not a stray driver's license, not even a report of a woman missing matching her description. No one called to say they thought the Lady of the Dunes was their missing mother, sister, or girlfriend. No local lobsterer saying he saw her eating fried clams on the boardwalk. Nothing. To be fair, though, the news about the mysterious woman's mysterious murder didn't make many waves right away. The New York Times ran a tiny paragraph on page 10 about the body a couple days after she was discovered, and then, as far as I could find, didn't print another word about it until almost a decade later in 1983. And I'll get to that, but the point is, it's not like it was front-page international news, so it's possible, even likely, that she had family somewhere that didn't know she was missing. So police took the only piece of anything they had to go on, the expensive New York-style dental work, and set about finding the dentist who had done it. Don't forget, she had about $5,000 worth of work in there. That's equivalent to almost $28,000 in today money. So we're talking about gold caps and who knows what else. Police sent the dental records to dental societies in 49 states, the FBI, Interpol, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and 5,000 dentists in Massachusetts. 5,000 dentists! That's almost 28,000 in today dentists! And still, with half the teeth experts in the Western Hemisphere and seemingly all of them in Massachusetts, looking at her records, not a single one came forward to say that this was their primo top-of-the-line chompers in the dead woman's mouth. On October 19, 1974, the Lady of the Dunes was buried in a grave on Cape Cod marked Unidentified Female Body Found Race Point Dunes. Local funeral director Robert Roth held a small non-sectarian service for her because he said, quote, it may sound sentimental, but 
I felt there should be some kind of service. After all, she was a human being. She might have wanted it. But just because her body was laid to rest didn't mean the mystery surrounding her death and life was. Over the years, the cold case that is the Lady of the Dunes just wouldn't stay buried, and neither, for that matter, would her body. years after the murder, Detective Warren Tobias and Police Chief James J. Meads began to suspect that the Lady of the Dunes was Rory Jean Kessinger. Kessinger was known to local police as a heavy drug user, and a year before the murder, she had been arrested for robbery and assault in Plymouth County. If you look at a map now, Plymouth County looks like the most ridiculously gerrymandered lines of squiggle ever, but it is, and probably was in 1974, the county just north of Barnstable County where the murder took place. And so, the Lady of the Dunes was exhumed in 1980. Investigators hoped to draw blood samples and possibly make a model of her face. Unfortunately, the blood test came back inconclusive, but the bust of her face, at least as far as Detective Warren and Chief Meads were concerned, resembled Kessinger. And I'm no forensic model maker, but how in the world you make any sort of usable model from a face that had been as gruesomely destroyed as this one was? I have no idea. But make when they did, that's why they're the forensic artists, and I'm the podcaster. Despite sending photos of the model of the Lady of the Dunes face to law enforcement across the country, no one could find Kessinger, so a conclusive match wasn't made. But in 1998, with still no progress on the case, investigators finally located Kessinger's mother and got a DNA sample from her to see if the old theory was right. In March of 2000, the Lady of the Dunes was exhumed again, making it only the second time in the history of the entire state of Massachusetts that a body would be exhumed for the sole purpose of identification. The first time, of course, had been 20 years earlier, the last time she'd been exhumed. With new DNA technology available, the Lady of the Dunes was dug up once again and bone marrow samples were taken. And still, no match. The new data could only prove pretty reasonably that the Lady of the Dunes was not Rory Jean Kessinger. Meanwhile, other, less scientific leads came in. Over the years, here and there, people came forward to say they thought the Lady of the Dunes was a relative. The first was in 1987, when a Canadian woman in her early 20s told a friend she had a memory of seeing her father strangle a woman in Provincetown 15 years earlier. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police were notified, and they brought the possible lead to Police Chief Meads. Meads was skeptical because the Lady of the Dunes had not been strangled, but he was willing to admit that she might have witnessed the killing. Thinking of how young she was and how long ago it had been, it was possible the memory of the strangling detail was incorrect. That said, it's sort of hard to imagine that she saw her father bludgeon a woman on the beach and turn that memory into a strangling. Whatever the case may be, the woman moved before Meads could get to her, and no one was able to locate her after that to follow up. 
And is it just me, or does this lead one to wonder who the hell the woman she saw get strangled was? Like, did anyone follow up and try to figure out if there was also an unsolved strangling murder in the same town in the same year? Come on, people. Multitask. That same year, a woman in Maryland came forward saying she thought the Lady of the Dunes might have been her sister, whom she hadn't heard from since she moved to Boston in 1974. Chief Meads told her the only way to identify her at that point would be through her dental records. Amazingly, the woman had her sister's dental records. Lord knows why. She sent them to Meads. They were not a match. Then, in 1993, a man named Haddon Clark, who was serving two 30-year sentences back-to-back for the double murder of a 6-year-old girl and a 23-year-old woman in Maryland, became a suspect in the murder of the Lady of the Dunes. Detective Tobias thought, given his proclivity for murder and that Haddon had been working in Provincetown in 1974, the possibility that he killed the Lady of the Dunes could not be ruled out. Of course, that led nowhere because there was no evidence. In fact, nothing collected at the scene or on the body seemed to point investigators to anyone. Then, in 2000, Haddon allegedly confessed to his cellmate, who he apparently thought was Jesus, to a possible 11 other murders, including the Lady of the Dunes. Clark supposedly had paranoid schizophrenia and claimed his alternate personality a woman named Kristen Bluefin was responsible for the murders. Kristen Bluefin? Come on. This is like the Cape Cod version of Kevin Spacey's character on The Usual Suspects coming up with Kaiser Sose. Detective Tobias became less convinced of this after interviewing Haddon. He found it nearly impossible to parse Haddon's fantasies from reality. Also, some of the details Haddon gave didn't match the evidence, which isn't to say he might have forgotten some things or conflated one of his 11 murders with another, but still, Tobias said he doubted Haddon had killed the Lady of the Dunes. Besides, Haddon would almost certainly end up dying in prison anyway, so if he did do it and they didn't pursue him, it's not like he was still a threat to the public. There are, however, two more recent theories about this mystery that are actually viable and that have not yet been disproved. In a 2015 blog post called The Lady and the Shark, Joe Hill, who just happens to be Stephen King's son, wrote this. What if we've all seen her? What if she's been in front of us for decades and we just never noticed? Jaws was filmed in Martha's Vineyard in the summer of 1974. It was a famously challenging production, originally scheduled for 50 days of shooting. It took over 120 days to complete and was continuously teetering on the edge of disaster. I had never seen it on the big screen until this summer. In June, Jaws was unleashed on theaters once more to celebrate its 40th anniversary. Naturally, predictably, maybe inevitably, I was there. For the first time, I saw the picture the way it was meant to be seen. 
I had recently spent a few minutes online acquainting myself with the latest details and studying the recreation of the Lady of the Dunes' face. And now, suddenly, impossibly, there she was, life-size and looking over her shoulder at me, there for a moment in a busy crowd scene and then gone. The thought wouldn't leave me that my unconscious mind had, in fact, latched into something. In the weeks that followed, I talked to several friends about what I had seen or thought I saw. Finally, I broached the subject with an FBI agent I know socially. I expected a good bit of teasing. Instead, he raised an eyebrow and said, You know, it might be worth going forward with your theory. There might be something in it. Otter ideas have cracked colder cases. It is impossible to say with complete precision when they filmed the July 4th crowd arrives sequence, which is where this shot appears. But we know it was almost certainly shot in June because they filmed all the on-island scenes they could early. The water was too cold for swimming and the malfunctioning shark wasn't ready for the at-sea material until late July. We also know the Lady of the Dunes was alive in June and that the filming of Jaws was a big deal locally. Lots of folks turned up to try to get a peek at the stars or the shark to see if they could sneak into a shot. The geography works, too. Martha's Vineyard is a short hop from Provincetown. It would be no surprise at all if a girl summering on the Cape decided to take a few days to explore the vineyard, especially with the added bait of celebrity to draw her in. It may not surprise you to find out, however, that production records of who was hired as extras in movies in the 1970s were not kept. It seems like no records of anything were kept before the mid-1980s. No sex offender records, no missing child records, no what Florida man got himself into this time records. So it stands to reason that no one thought, hey, I wonder if maybe we should keep a record of the hundreds of miscellaneous people we hire to fill out the background in our movies. Even if they weren't hired, you'd think people who were in the shot would have had to at least sign some kind of agreement. If something was signed, it's been lost to time because no one has been able to track down a list of who was in that scene. If there was a record of who was in the scene in Jaws that Joe Hill is referring to, they could figure out who that woman was and maybe find her family and be like, hey, have you seen this woman since 1974? And also, who is she? Anyway. Retired police chief Warren Tobias isn't so sure. According to a piece about Joe Hill's theory, Tobias said, Do I think it's her? I don't know. Is there a resemblance? Yeah, I think some, but it was the 70s. I mean, hundreds of thousands of young women dressed that way, blue jeans and bandanas with their hair down. Is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? Probably not. Just the mathematical odds. One would think, if she was still alive, the woman from that group scene in Jaws would have heard this rumor by now and come forward to say, nope, I'm still alive. I definitely was not murdered on a beach in 1974. Then again, she'd be in her 80s. And no offense to my octogenarian friends, huge demographic of mine, and my dad, but people in their 80s aren't the most internet savvy. Still, you'd think someone in her life might have read Joe Hill's blog or seen the feature on it in Esquire 
or any of the other outlets that covered it and been like, hey, Bobby, this guy thinks you might have been murdered on a beach in 1974. Then again, maybe she wants to be anonymous. Maybe she has heard that rumor and she's like, thank God. Everyone thinks I'm dead now. I can finally get some goddamn peace. It's also possible the lady in the group shot wasn't murdered on a beach in 1974, but has since died, and so hasn't been able to respond to the rumor. Still, again, you'd think someone would have come forward by now and been like, I'm pretty sure the woman in that picture is my great-aunt Millie, or whatever. But enough of that cinema speculation. Let's go back to the concrete details. Let's talk about the missing hands. So if you're like me, when you heard that the Lady of the Dunes hands had been cut off, you instantly thought of the mafia. You only need to watch one episode of The Sopranos to know that you have to cut off the hands of the person you whack so the police can't identify them. Now, I would go one step further and say it's a safe bet to also pull out all their teeth, especially if they have such distinctive dental work. Like, if their teeth are all snaggled and brown and it's clear they've never been to a dentist, no worries. There's probably not a single dental record for that person anyway. But a person with thousands of dollars of work in their mouth definitely left a trail somewhere. But for me, the missing hands are a dead giveaway. Turns out I'm not the only one who suspects a mafia connection. In 2012, after notorious mob man of Boston, James Whitey Bulger was finally arrested after eluding police for 16 years on the lam, Witnesses started coming forward claiming to have seen Bulger with a woman who resembled the composite sketches and bust of the Lady of the Dunes in and around Provincetown in 1974. And listen, I'm not saying that every white woman in her 30s looked the same in the 1970s, but if you go back and watch Forensic Files or old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries or any true crime stuff featuring crimes from the 70s and 80s, I think we can all agree that, at the very least, a lot of white men in their 30s looked alike. Blonde mullet, creepy mustache, and those big menacing glasses associated with, well, you know. It was a truly unfortunate time for the male aesthetic. And I'd say the same is largely true for white women of the era. Long, straight hair, unless they were perming, teasing, or hairspraying for Jesus, but that came a little later. I'm not trying to shit on the 70s, per se. I'm sure in 40 years we'll look back at today and go, man, everyone looked exactly alike. Anyway, that's not my point, damn it. My point is, just as the babushka lady from a few episodes ago looked like a generic 1960s grandma, the likeness of the Lady of the Dunes and the woman in the still from the jaw scene both look like generic white 30-ish 1970s women. That said, Whitey Bulger and his Winter Hill Gang, which sounds less like a menacing mafia family and more like a knockoff hip-hop group from the 1980s, were headquartered in Boston, which was about a two-hour drive from Provincetown, and, I'm sure, even quicker on the gaudy sailboat Whitey must have owned. How else was he privately dumping bodies into the drink? For the record, I don't know that he dumped bodies into the ocean, but to be fair, it's a safe assumption for a mafioso convicted of at least 11 murders who lived by the ocean. Some have hinted that Bulger spent quite a lot of time in Provincetown because it was a known safe haven for the LGBT community. 
There was a pervasive, if hushed, rumor throughout Bulger's life that he was bisexual. Of course, no mafia boss from mid-century Boston is going to come out and admit to being anything other than an alpha male straight. In his 2006 book, The Brothers Bulger, radio personality Howie Carr claimed that Bulger, quote, got his start in the criminal underground as a teen after a lesbian pimp recruited him to hustle out of gay bars. I want to read her memoir. Carr says that Bulger continued hustling in gay bars for some time, usually robbing his customers. But, Carr insists, Bulger was never, quote, exclusively homosexual, which, coincidentally, is the name of my forthcoming expose on outed megachurch leaders. In 2001, former Boston Police Superintendent Bob Hayden told the Boston Herald he crossed paths with Bulger in the mid-1970s at a well-known gay and drag bar in Boston's Bay Village called Jacques. Bob Hayden said, quote, I was doing a night detail at Jacques. Sure you were, Bob. Sure you were. And that he and Bulger chatted at the bar. But Hayden also said that he always thought Jacques was the perfect place for Bulger to have a few beers unnoticed. Which sounds less like he was gay or bi and more like why a lot of young straight women prefer gay bars. There's nothing like having a drink in peace or with your friends without having to fend off constant unwanted advances. I believe the storyline about Bulger's sexuality is a way to put him in Provincetown in 1974 when the murder occurred. But plenty of people visit Provincetown, gay and straight alike. Also, it's an established fact that mobsters had a habit of not only wheeling and dealing out of back rooms and corners of gay bars, but quite a few gay bars were owned by mobsters, at least until it became legal for openly gay people to patronize bars. So the connection between the mob and gay establishments is well known. The main connection between Bulger's proclivity for hanging out at gay bars is that the towel the Lady of the Dunes was laying on may have been from a popular Provincetown gay bar called the Crown and Anchor Motor Inn. In 1982, the owner of the Crown and Anchor, Staniford Sorrentino, claimed Bulger was a frequent overnight guest at the inn and at his home, and that Bulger was, quote, inclined toward violence, which I'd say is a gross understatement. Also, Lord knows, in a beach town, people make off with towels all the time. Just because she was laying on a towel from the crown and anchor doesn't mean she or anyone she knew had ever been there. Even if it was Bulger, or one of his stoolies, I guess, who killed the Lady of the Dunes, that still doesn't answer the question of who she was. Enter crime fiction writer Sandra Lee, who stepped forward in 2014 to say that it was she, not 12-year-old Leslie Metcalf, who first discovered the Lady of the Dunes. She said she never told anyone because she was scared. Of what? I have no idea. But I suppose 40 years is enough time to not be scared of whatever it was anymore. Lee's claim is that she came across the body two days before Metcalf. Lee, who was only nine years old at the time, said, My dog got excited about something. I heard a very strange noise. If you could imagine someone holding a string of pearls, I heard that sound. When I first read this, I had no idea what it meant. 
But all I could picture was someone clutching their pearls and saying, I do declare. Needless to say, I was very confused. Lee goes on, quote, It wasn't until much later that I realized that the sound of someone playing with a pearl necklace was from maggots. Her body was covered with maggots, end quote. So, not someone saying, I do declare. Noted. She also said, quote, I believe there were a few people who found the body, but there is only one who spoke to the police in person about it. End quote. And this leads me to a pretty big question, which is, what was going on in Provincetown in 1974 that whole groups of people were discovering a dead body and not telling anyone about it? Like, it's pretty simple. See a dead body, report it to police. You can even do it anonymously. What in the actual fuck? Sandra, I wrote a book based on the Lady of the Dunes, and also, by the way, I was the first to discover her body 40 years ago, Lee, believes the Lady of the Dunes was likely an Irish immigrant who got swept up and trafficked by Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. Which isn't all that unreasonable. It would explain why no one had come forward looking for her. If she had come over from Ireland or anywhere else for that matter, it's possible no one even knew she was missing. As for the expensive dental work, who knows? Maybe she was a mistress of one of the higher-ups in the family and they paid to get her teeth fixed? That's plausible. And it could explain why not a single dentist came forward to say they'd treated her. My guess is when a mafioso comes in and hands you wads of cash for a job, you don't exactly keep a record of it. Nor do you go around telling anyone who asks, oh yeah, Whitey Bulger paid for her gold teeth. I suppose it's just a coincidence that Lee had published a novel called The Shanty based on the famous mystery two years before coming forward with the claim that she found the Lady of the Dunes first. Look, I'm not implying that Lee cooked up a story about being the first to stumble upon the body of the dead woman 40 years earlier as a ploy to sell more books. (laughs) Who am I kidding? That is exactly what I'm implying. The Lady of the Dunes was exhumed yet again for a third time in 2013 in order to gather more samples for future testing. Nothing has come of that evidence either. And there it is. To this day, the identity of the woman and her killer are still a mystery. It is possible with advancement in DNA technology that more clues could be extracted, at the very least possibly figuring out where the Lady of the Dunes came from. Maybe tracking down a family member who can help solve that part of the mystery. But current Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe believes the chances of figuring out who she was and who killed her are remote. The more time that passes, the fewer contemporaries will be alive to interview. And given how many times the body was dug up and handled, and the fact that she was embalmed, all make unraveling this mystery even harder. And I have to say, as macabre as it may sound, it's a little sad to know that we live in a time where real mysteries are hard to come by. Advancements in technology and science are making our world, and as a result, our stories, less and less discreet. People can be tracked and traced step by step. 
Hands might be cut off, but digital fingerprints are forever. Don't get me wrong, I'm not celebrating the fact that this poor woman died without anyone ever knowing who she was, but like pushing on a loose tooth, there's something almost painfully satisfying about not being able to know the answer. About the wondering. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, our government has been known to do some questionable things, but they wouldn't try to get inside our brains and control our thoughts, right? Right? Government mind control, the true and the possibly untrue? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>